Good evening. I hope you've had a wonderful day today. Welcome to BVJ's Bedtime Stories. My name is Big Voice J, and this is a show where we get you ready for a great night's sleep with the most familiar stories that you haven't heard in a while. Links to every story can be found in the show notes at our website, bedtimewithbvj.com. Tonight's story... A Voyage to the Moon by Edgar Allan Poe After a long and arduous devotion to the study of physics and astronomy, I, Hans Fall of Rotterdam, at length determined to construct a balloon of my own along original lines and to try a flight in it. Accordingly, I had made an enormous bag out of cambric muslin, varnished with kotshu for protection against the weather. I procured all the instruments needed for a prolonged ascent, and finally prepared for the inflation of the balloon. Herein lay my secret. My invention, the thing in which my balloon differed from all the balloons that had gone before. Out of a peculiar metallic substance and a very common acid, I was able to manufacture a gas of a density of about 37.4 less than that of hydrogen, and thus, by far, the lightest substance ever known. It would serve to carry the balloon to heights greater than what had been attained before, for hydrogen is the gas usually used. The hour for my experiment in ballooning finally arrived. I had chosen the night as the best time for the ascension, because I should thereby avoid annoyances caused by the curiosity of the ignorant and the idle. It was the first of April. The night was dark, there was not a star to be seen, and a drizzling rain falling at intervals made me very uncomfortable. But my chief anxiety was concerning the balloon, which, in spite of the varnish with which it was defended, began to grow rather heavy with the moisture. I therefore sat my assistants to working, and in about four hours and a half I found the balloon sufficiently inflated. I attached a car and put all my implements in it, a telescope, a barometer, thermometer, an electrometer, a compass, a magnetic needle, a second's watch, a bell, and other things. I had further procured a globe of glass, exhausted of air and carefully closed with a stopper, not forgetting a special apparatus for condensing air, a copious supply of water, and a large quantity of provisions such as pemmican, in which much nutriment is contained in comparatively little bulk. I also secured a cat in the car. It was now nearly daybreak, and I thought it high time to take my departure. I immediately cut the single cord which held me to the earth, and was pleased to find that I shot upward with inconceivable rapidity, carrying with all ease 175 pounds of lead and ballast, and able to have carried as much more. Scarcely, however, had I attained the height of 50 yards, when roaring and rumbling up after me in the most tumultuous and terrible manner, came so dense a hurricane of fire and gravel and burning wood and blazing metal that my very heart sunk within me, and I fell down in the car, trembling with terror. Some of my chemical materials had exploded immediately beneath me, almost at the moment of my leaving Earth. The balloon at first collapsed, then furiously expanded, then whirled round and round with sickening velocity and finally, reeling and staggering like a drunken man, hurled me over the rim of the car, and in the moment of my fall, 
I lost consciousness. I had no knowledge of what had saved me. When I partially recovered the sense of existence, I found the day breaking, the balloon at a prodigious height over a wilderness of ocean, and not a trace of land to be discovered far and wide within the limits of the vast horizon. My sensations, however, upon thus recovering, were by no means so replete with agony as might have been anticipated. Indeed, it was much of madness in the calm survey which I began to take of my situation. I drew up to my eyes each of my hands, one after the other, and wondered what occurrence could have given rise to the swelling of the veins and the horrible blackness of the fingernails. I afterward carefully examined my head, shaking it repeatedly and feeling it with minute attention, until I succeeded in satisfying myself that it was not, as I had more than half suspected, larger than the balloon. It now occurred to me that I suffered great uneasiness in the joint of my left ankle, and a dim consciousness of my situation began to glimmer through my mind. I began to understand that my foot had caught in a rope and that I was hanging downward outside the car. But strange to say, I was neither astonished nor horror-stricken. If I felt any emotion at all, it was sort of a chuckling satisfaction at the cleverness I was about to display in getting myself out of this dilemma. With great caution and deliberation, I put my hands behind my back and unfastened the large iron buckle which belonged to the waistband of my pantaloons. This buckle had three teeth, which, being somewhat rusty, turned with great difficulty on their axis. I brought them, however, after some trouble, at right angles to the body of the buckle, and was glad to find them remain firm in that position. Holding with my teeth the instrument thus obtained, I proceeded to untie the knot of my cravat. It was at length accomplished. To one end of the cravat I then made fast the buckle, and the other end I tied, for greater security, tightly around my waist. Drawing now my body upward with a prodigious exertion of muscular force, I succeeded, at the very first trial, in throwing the buckle over the car and entangling it, as I had anticipated, in the circular rim of the wickerwork. My body was now inclined toward the side of the car at an angle of about 45 degrees, but it must not be understood that I was therefore only 45 degrees below the perpendicular. So far from it, I still lay nearly level with the plane of the horizon, for the change of position which I had acquired had forced the bottom of the car considerably outward from my position, which was accordingly one of the most extreme perils. It should be remembered, however, that when I fell from the car, if I had fallen with my face turned toward the balloon, instead of turned outwardly from it as it actually was, or if in the second place the cord by which I was suspended had chanced to hang over the upper edge instead of through a crevice near the bottom of the car, in either of these cases, I should have been unable to accomplish even as much as I had now accomplished. I had therefore every reason to be grateful, although, in point of fact, I was still too stupid to be anything at all, and hung for perhaps a quarter of an hour in that extraordinary manner, without making the slightest farther exertion, and in a singularly tranquil state of idiotic enjoyment. This feeling, however, did not fail to die rapidly away, and therein too succeeded horror and dismay, and a sense of utter hopelessness and ruin. 
and a sense of utter helplessness and ruin. In fact, the blood so long accumulating in the vessels of my head and throat, and which had hitherto buoyed up my spirits with delirium, had now begun to retire within its proper channels, and the distinctness which was thus added to my perception of the danger merely served to deprive me of the self-possession and courage to encounter it. But this weakness was, luckily for me, of no very great duration. In good time came to my rescue the spirit of despair, and with frantic cries and struggles I jerked my body upward, till at length, clutching with a vice-like grip the long-sleeved rim, I writhed my person over it and fell headlong and shuddering within the car. When I had recovered from the weakness caused by being so long in that position and the horror from which I had suffered, I found that all my implements were in place and that neither ballast nor provisions had been lost. It is now high time that I should explain the object of my voyage. I had been harassed for long by poverty and creditors. In this state of mind, wishing to live and yet weaned with life, my deep studies in astronomy opened a resource to my imagination. I determined to depart, yet live, to leave the world, yet continue to exist, in short, to be plain. I resolved to let come what would, to force a passage, if possible, to the moon. This was not so mad as it seems. The moon's actual distance from the earth was the first thing to be attended to. The mean or average interval between the centers of the two planets is only about 237,000 miles. But at certain times the moon and earth are much nearer than at others, and if I could contrive to meet the moon at the moment when it was nearest earth, the above-mentioned distance would be materially lessened. But even taking the average distance and deducting the radius of the earth and the moon, the actual interval to be traversed under average circumstances would be 231,920 miles. Now this, I reflected, was no very extraordinary distance. Traveling on the land has been repeatedly accomplished at the rate of 60 miles an hour, and indeed a much greater speed may be anticipated. But even at this velocity, it would take me no more than 161 days to reach the surface of the moon. There were, however, many particulars inducing me to believe that my average rate of traveling might possibly very much exceed that of 60 miles an hour. The next point to be regarded was one of far greater importance. We know that at 18,000 feet above the surface of the Earth, we have passed one half of the material, or, at all events, one half the ponderable body of air upon the globe. It is also calculated that at a height of 80 miles, the rarefaction of air is so great that animal life can be sustained in no manner. But I did not fail to perceive that these calculations are founded on our experimental knowledge of the air in the immediate vicinity of the earth, and that it is taken for granted that animal life is incapable of modification. I thought that no matter how high we may ascend, we cannot arrive at a limit beyond which no atmosphere is to be found. It must exist, I argue, although it may exist in a state of infinite rarefaction. Having adopted the view of the subject, I had little farther hesitation. Granting that on my passage, 
I should meet with atmosphere essentially the same as at the surface of the earth. I thought that, by means of my very ingenious apparatus for that purpose, I should readily be able to condense it in sufficient quantity for breathing. This would remove the chief obstacle in a journey to the moon. I now turned to view the prospect beneath me. At twenty minutes past six o'clock, the barometer showed an elevation of 26,000 feet, or five miles to a fraction. The outlook seemed unfounded. I beheld as much as a sixteen-hundredth part of the whole surface of the globe. The sea appeared as unruffled as a mirror, although, by means of the telescope, I could perceive it to be in a state of violent agitation. I now began to experience, at intervals, severe pain in the head, especially about the ears, due to the rare fact there. The cat seemed to suffer no inconvenience whatsoever. I was rising rapidly, and by seven o'clock the barometer indicated an altitude of no less than nine miles and a half. I began to find great difficulty in drawing my breath. My head, too, was excessively painful, and having felt for some time a moisture about my cheeks, I at length discovered it to be blood, which was oozing quite fast from the drums of my ears. These symptoms were more than I had expected, and had occasioned me some alarm. At this juncture, very imprudently and without consideration, I threw out from the car three five-pound pieces of ballast. The increased rate of ascent thus obtained carried me too rapidly into a highly rarefied layer of atmosphere, and the result nearly proved fatal to my expedition and myself. I was suddenly seized with a spasm which lasted for more than five minutes, and even when this in a measure ceased, I could catch my breath only at long intervals and in a gasping manner, bleeding all the while copiously at the nose and ears and even slightly at the eyes. The cat mewed piteously, and with her tongue hanging out of her mouth, staggered to and fro in the car, as if under the influence of poison. I now too late discovered the great rashness of which I had been guilty in discharging my ballast, and my agitation was excessive. I expected nothing less than death, and death in a few minutes. I lay down at the bottom of the car, and endeavored to collect my faculties. In this I so far succeeded as to determine upon the experiment of losing blood. Having no lancet, I was obliged to open a vein in my arm with the blade of a penknife. The blood had hardly commenced flowing when I experienced a sensible relief, and by the time I had lost about half a basin full, most of the worst symptoms were gone. The difficulty of breathing, however, was diminished in a very slight degree and I found that it would be soon positively necessary to make use of my condenser. By eight o'clock, I had actually attained an elevation of seventeen miles above the surface of the earth. Thus it seemed to be evident that my rate of ascent was not only in the increase, but that the progress would have been apparent to a slight extent, even had I not discharged a ballast, which I did. The pains in my head and ears returned at intervals and with violence, and I still continued to bleed occasionally at the nose, but upon the whole I suffered much less than might have been expected. I now unpacked the condensing apparatus and got it ready for immediate use. The view of the earth at this period of my ascension was beautiful indeed. To the westward, the northward, and the southward, as far as I could see, lay a boundless sheet of apparently unruffled ocean. 
which every moment gained a deeper and deeper tint of blue. At a vast distance to the eastward, although perfectly discernible, extended the islands of Great Britain, the entire Atlantic coasts of France and Spain, or the small portion of the northern part of the continent of Africa. Of individual edifices not a trace could be found, and the proudest cities of mankind had utterly faded away from the surface of the earth. At a quarter past eight, being able to no longer draw breath without the most intolerable pain, I proceeded forthwith to adjust around the car the apparatus belonging to the condenser. I prepared a very strong, perfectly airtight gum-elastic bag. In this bag, which was of sufficient size, the entire car was in a manner placed. That is to say, the bag was drawn over the whole bottom of the car, up its sides, and so on, up to the upper rim where the network is attached. Having pulled up the bag and made a complete enclosure on all sides, I was shut in an airtight chamber. In the sides of this covering had been inserted three circular panes of thick but clear glass, through which I could see without difficulty around me in every horizontal direction. And that portion of the cloth forming the bottom was a fourth window corresponding with a small aperture in the floor of the car itself. This enabled me to see straight down, but I had been unable to fix a similar window above me, and so I could expect to see no objects directly overhead. The condensing apparatus was connected with the outer air by a tube to admit air at one end, and by a valve at the bottom of the car to eject foul air. By the time I had completed these arrangements, and filled the chamber with condensed air by means of the apparatus, it wanted only ten minutes of nine o'clock. During the whole period of my being thus employed, I endured the most terrible distress from difficulty of respiration, and bitterly did I repent the foolhardiness of which I had been guilty of putting off to the last moment a matter of so much importance. But having at length accomplished it, I soon began to reap the benefit of my invention. Once again, I breathed with perfect freedom and ease, and indeed, why should I not? I was also agreeably surprised to find myself, in a great measure, relieved from the violent pains which had hitherto tormented me. A slight headache, accompanied by a sensation of fullness about the wrists, the ankles, and the throat, was nearly all of which I had now to complain. At twenty minutes before nine o'clock, the mercury attained its limit, or ran down, in the barometer. The instrument then indicated an altitude of 25 miles, and I consequently surveyed at that time an extent of the Earth's area amounting to no less than one three hundred and twentieth part of the entire surface. At half past nine, I tried the experiment of throwing out a handful of feathers through the valve. They did not float as I had expected, but dropped down like a bullet, and with the greatest velocity, being out of sight in a very few seconds. It occurred to me that the atmosphere was now far too rare to sustain even feathers, that they actually fell as they appeared to do with great speed, and that I had been surprised by the united velocities of their descent and my own rise. At six o'clock p.m., I perceived a great portion of the Earth's visible area to the eastward involved in thick shadow, which continued to advance with great rapidity, until at five minutes before seven, the whole surface in sight was enveloped in the darkness of night. 
It was not, however, until long after this time that the rays of the setting sun ceased to illumine the balloon. And this fact, although of course expected, did not fail to give me great pleasure. In the morning I should behold the rising illuminary many hours before the citizens of Rotterdam, in spite of their situation so much farther to the eastward, and thus, day after day, in proportion to the height ascended, I should enjoy the light of the sun for a longer and longer period. I now resolved to keep a journal of my passage, reckoning the days by twenty-four hours instead of by day and night. We'll continue our story on our next episode. I want to remind you that we're always on the hunt for great stories to feature on the podcast. If you know of one, email me, bigvoicej at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening. Good night. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>